0: Please take your Bibles and do turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 42 this morning of Acts chapter 5. And uh, if you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 913. And, And as we look at this text, I want to remind us that God himself is going to speak to us today. He is going to speak to us from his word in the power of His Spirit as He does every Lord's Day. And so we rejoice with uh, one another at this opportunity to hear from God. The title of our sermon is Filling Jerusalem. And the key words for our worshipers in training, for our children listening, paying attention, the words are arrested, witness, and "suffer." In Acts 1-8, Jesus reminds His disciples that He was to give them the Holy Spirit. He told them that they would receive the promised Holy Spirit who would empower them, who would give them strength to bear witness to Jesus and His resurrection. And we noted, when we looked at Acts 1-8, when we opened up this series a couple of months ago, that this witnessing was to be a witness marked by suffering. The suffering witness would start in Jerusalem, where the disciples were told to wait for the Spirit. And once the Spirit came, it was to expand out from Jerusalem to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And finally, they were to bear witness to Christ all the way to the end of the earth. And it was in this manner, he reminds them, that he would bring about the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations for God to establish his kingdom on the earth once and for all, thus fulfilling his promises to Israel. Well, ten days after this promise and his ascension into heaven and exaltation to the right hand of God, Jesus did what he said he would do. He sent his Spirit, and immediately he began expanding his kingdom territory through the preaching of the apostles regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He converted 3,000 souls to the cause of the kingdom in a single day. And he continued to add to that number by his Spirit daily, even thousands at a time. Jesus is the resurrected and the exalted King. He is the man who obeyed God and conquered death. He is now continuing His work on earth, expanding His kingdom to the ends of the earth through the witness of His people. And yet, as Christ began to expand His kingdom throughout Jerusalem, the religious leaders who were you could say the face of the kingdom of man, they were somewhat ironically, though predictably, based on how they had treated Jesus while he was on earth, they were offended by the advance of God's kingdom. They tried to shut it down, as we saw in Acts chapter 3 and 4. And yet they failed miserably to do so. The church experienced opposition. But God's Spirit, as I just mentioned, added to their numbers daily. God's Spirit made His people bold. He drove them to prayer and He kept them unified and radically generous despite the development of these threats. Both threats from outside the church, the persecution of the religious leaders, but also the threats that were coming from within the church. What we saw last week, the lies and the perversity from two professing members, Ananias and Sapphira, whom upon their lies to God were struck dead instantly. And so these are the things that we've been seeing in Acts 3 through 5 in the past several weeks. Well, now we're coming to the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, and what we're going to to see this week in Acts 5 and next week in Acts 6 are two more examples of the threats that came upon the church. This week, as we close out chapter 5, we're going to see the threat of persecution once again uh, come upon the church. But this time it's heightened. This time it is growing. And next week, Lord willing, we will see the, in the opening verses of chapter 6 how the, the growing needs of the church of the growing church, actually began to lead to division among the members. But how we will also see how the apostles worked out a solution. So that's the next two weeks, Lord willing. Uh, We're going to look here in chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. Let me read these verses, outline them, and then we'll get to work. Starting in verse 17. Well, really, uh, I'll start in 16. The people were, were coming together, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the the people. they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So there are three movements, major movements that this passage makes that we will consider this morning. First, in verses 17 through uh, the first part of verse 21, we will see the apostles arrested because of the healing that they had been doing in the previous paragraph, in verses 12 through 16. Well, second then, in verses 21-21, B, really the second half of verse 21 through verse 32, we will see the apostles detained and questioned. And then third in verses 33 through verse 42, we will see the apostles beaten and released. So they are arrested and they escape. They are then detained and questioned and then they are beaten and released. And we will look at each of these in order. Look with me in the first place at verses 17-21 through where we see the arrest of the apostles. Back in chapter 4, verse 2, the the priests and the Sadducees had arrested Peter and John because they had healed a man uh, who had been lame from birth. Now, in uh, chapter 5, verse 17, they arrest all, or, or most of the apostles at least, because they were once again healing people. They were waging war against the devil. And so Luke tells us that it was because of jealousy that the apostles were arrested. It was jealousy that led the religious leaders to go on the attack here. And before we really look too much at any of this, it's worth just considering the pettiness of the Sanhedrin, of these The the priests and the Sadducees here, they arrested the the apostles because they were jealous. The people were looking to the apostles and not to the Sanhedrin any longer for help. And so they were stung by the bitter dart of jealousy. They didn't care that multitudes of people were being healed of both illnesses and they were receiving freedom from demonic oppression at the hands of the apostles. They didn't care about any of that. What they cared about was their own place of privilege and power. It was their own prestige that concerned them most. And now that that was under attack, they lash out at the apostles, throwing them in a cage. Peter had pointed out in chapter 4, verse 9 during his first arrest that it was because of a good deed that they were being questioned. Well, here in verses 17 and 18, they're arrested once again because of multiple good deeds. All of the apostles now are brought under scrutiny. And so that's an important thing to see here. What's happening in this growing threat of opposition to the church? Back in chapter 4, it was Peter and John who were arrested. Now, it's all the apostles. The church continued to grow, but so did the world's resistance to it. It's not just two apostles, but it's all of them now. And yet, as we're going to see in the very near future, in the coming weeks, when we get to chapter 6 and to chapter 7 and to chapter 8, There is a full-blown persecution coming. We've not reached the fever pitch yet. Presently, there's still some level of hesitancy on the part of the Sanhedrin. They're they're somewhat not quite secretive about it, but they're trying to toe the line. They're fearful of the people. Well, that's going away soon, but that is where they are now. And so they arrest them. But nevertheless, even through the arrest, God's kingdom continued to advance and to triumph majestically over the kingdom of man. We see in verses 19 and 20 that an angel of the Lord opened the prison door for them and brought them out, instructing them to continue on their mission. He says, go into the temple, speak life to the people. And so, as if nothing had happened the day prior, nothing unusual, they went back to what they were doing. They entered the temple as they had been commanded, and they taught the people. And so while we're struck by the pettiness of the religious leaders, we should be equally and perhaps more so struck by what? The boldness of the disciples, the boldness of the apostles. Think about this. Like, if you're familiar with the gospels at all, and what happens at the crucifixion, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, what do the apostles do? These are the same men that all, in a single night, fled their master that they had followed for three years relentlessly. On one night, he was betrayed, and they left him. Peter even, who now, this is his second arrest, Peter was questioned by a young girl at Jesus' trial. And he called on God to damn him to hell if he even knew Jesus. And now, he is staring Jesus' executioners in the face with boldness. Not with arrogance, but with boldness To speak the truth. It is truly an amazing change that has been wrought in God's people by the Holy Spirit. These same men who had murdered Jesus have now arrested Peter and John for a second time, the other apostles for the first time, and yet they get out of jail and immediately go back to work. They go to the temple, and it's not even secret, they're not even going back to work sort of secretly. They go to the temple to proclaim Christ. And of course, it should come as no surprise to us that they are this bold. This is the exact thing that they had prayed for in chapter 4 after Peter and John's first arrest. 429. O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And so they are granted boldness by the Spirit to continue to speak. And it is a stunning example here of their courage. So that's their arrest. The disciples are arrested, but then they are freed, not by man, but by God Himself. And so they go back to work. But this doesn't end their interaction with The law enforcement there. Look with me then in the second place, uh, beginning in verse 21, the sort of the second half of it, all the way to 33, where we see the Sanhedrin continue on the war path once they find the apostles no longer sitting securely in their jail cell. We see in these verses here, in 21 through 33, sort of in summary form, right? The Sanhedrin has convened in the morning and they request that the prisoners be brought to them but then they're told that the men are nowhere to be found and they just they don't know what to do with this information and understandably it is it would be surprising and confusing baffling to them they had 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 they been outwitted what was going on and especially what would it come to they realize perhaps perhaps it's a fleeting recognition that we are in over our heads and yet, immediately they hear, hey, those guys that you arrested, they're just back to it. They are back in the temple, they're teaching the people again. And so, rather than letting it go, or rather than storming over and arresting them, making a big scene and spectacle of it, they, dra- uh, they don't drag them out by force, we're told, but they convince them to come with them, right? They strongly request, uh, or even demand that they come, but they don't do it by physical force. And they bring them back to the, original, the originally intended place of meeting. You might say here that rather than being arrested, they were merely detained. And here again, considering the religious leaders, not only are they petty because they're just jealous and so they arrest them, but they're also cowards. Right? If they believe, and I, if we're being charitable at all, we would assume they at least believe that what they were doing in some manner was right, and yet for mere fear of the people. That's why they don't do it by force. Not because they didn't want to, not because they didn't think they should or had a right to, but merely because they were afraid. And so as we saw before, in their interactions with Peter and John, they're still afraid of the people. But when they do get them back, and they've, they've sat before them, they're, they've surrounded them, and the high priest says, we told you guys to shut it. We told you to stop talking about this man Jesus. To keep his name out of your mouths. And yet, he says, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Which is irony at its finest. If you remember at Jesus' trial, what was the exchange between Pilate and the people? Pilate and the religious leaders. Pilate, if you remember, he wanted to rid himself, he didn't want to crucify Jesus. But cowardly as he was, he agreed to it, but he tries to rid himself of the guilt of crucifying an innocent man, telling the religious leaders what? He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And what do they say? All the people answered, led by these men, at least some of these men, His blood be on us and on our children. A chilling request to be sure. And yet here, they have conveniently forgotten that. And they want to... Blame the apostles for bringing the blood of Jesus upon them. And so they, they accuse them here of, of disobedience. And before we look at how the apostles respond, beginning in verse 29, I want to pause for a moment and just ask, what do you think might have flashed through their hearts and their their souls when they heard this accusation that they had filled Jerusalem with their teaching. Admittedly, this is a guess here, okay? But my guess, exceeding joy. Jesus had commanded them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. And then from there, they were to go to the ends of the earth, And now, in this very moment, they are told by the opposition, mission accomplished, boys. You've done it. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That task that he had given you, was the first part of it? You can check that one off your list. And so, likely, with joy in their hearts, they respond, And Peter, once more functioning as the spokesperson, tells them simply, similarly to what he had said before, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, you gave us a law, a command that was unlawful. One that contradicted what God had said. And so we must obey God rather than men. He informs the religious leaders, again, you you could not be farther from God, folks, is what he says. You killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree, but God had raised Jesus from the dead. He brought him to life. And then he, he adds something here that's significant. He says, you killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. In Deuteronomy 21, 22 and th- uh, 21, verse 22 and 23, Moses tells us that it was an outright curse to be hanged on a tree. And it was to be reserved for the worst of the worst. The religious leaders, therefore, hadn't just killed Jesus, but they had invited the curse of God upon Him by hanging Him on the tree. And yet, God's commitment to Jesus overcame the curse, and so He raised Him to life and exalted Him at His right hand so that repentance and forgiveness might be granted to Israel and, thank God, to all of the world, to the rest of us. And so he concludes by making it plain. He says, guys, we are his witnesses. But it's not just us that witnesses to Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that bears him witness, whom God has given to all who obey him. And so the point is clear. He says, you men and your religious hypocrisy are destitute of God's Spirit. You are radically opposed to God who is the author of life because you are lovers of death. And so we have no obligation to listen to a command that you give in an attempt to silence us and to keep us from obeying our Lord. Again, the the boldness of the apostles is on full display here as they are empowered by God's Spirit to obey the command of Jesus. And so for us... Very quickly, we'll come back to it a bit at the end, but just to say, as we think about laws and commands in our day, to whom do we listen? To whom must we obey? Whom must we obey? Is it man or is it God? Well, lastly on this point, we see in verse 33, we see how the Sanhedrin responds to this. They hear once more about the resurrection of Christ from the dead and they are filled not with jealousy this time, but with utter rage. And they want to kill these men. Darkness hates the light. Death hates what is living. Living in this world, we must prepare for that fact. We must take it to heart, this world hates you because it hated the one whom you love. And so it should come as no surprise to us when we find resistance in the world. And yet, the hope for the Christian is that God is overcoming the resistance in the world. But it shouldn't be surprising, from time to time, in moments of tension, when the world hates us. So that's the arrest, the release, the, the divine release, and then we see the detention and the questioning of the apostles. Look from the, end of the third place, in verses thirty-four through forty-two, where we see. Um, the disciples ultimately released, but only after they are beaten. Here we see one of the members of the council intervene in the the rest of the members' blossoming conspiracy to murder twelve innocent men, and it results in the the apostles' temporary release. Gamaliel, he was one of the more respected members of the council. He was. Uh, we're told that the apostle Paul, Saul, right, was. Uh, of the school of Gamaliel. He was instructed by him. Uh, this man, he interjects, and he, he says, "Hey, now, let's, let's set these guys outside for a minute. We need to talk. And he tells his fellow council members that they need to be very careful what they do here. And he offers two historical examples of failed former coups and notes that the movement before them with these 12 men and the thousands of people who love them, uh, it's either from God or it, it's from man. And his conclusion, therefore, is that if it's from man, he says it's doomed to fail. And so, likely, given the apostles' well-beloved status within Jerusalem, it would be best not to get on the people's bad side, but instead, they should keep away from these men and let their inevitable collapse run its course. However, he says, it could be, on the other hand, it could be coming from God. And if that's the case, you definitely don't want to oppose it, because while any untimely opposition to the work of man could be bad, any opposition to the work of God ever is utter insanity. And so Luke tells us in verse 39 that they took his advice, albeit, as we'll see in the weeks to come, only temporarily. And so they do let them go. But they make sure to beat them first, likely the 39 lashes that, they were, that were customary of the day. They beat them. They let them go. And, um, you know, again, they, they tell them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And yet, their threats, their beatings, their warnings, their coercion did not have the intended effect. For Luke concludes with this astounding note at the end of the passage. They, that is the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Berated, bruised, and bleeding, they completely reject and ignore the council's command. And then we're told every single day, Going from the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the leader, the Savior whom God had appointed. He is the King of God's kingdom. And they did it tirelessly. And so, brothers and sisters, Let us, like our predecessors here, never cease to spread the fame of Jesus. Is your life marked by a devotion to Jesus? You know, I think sometimes in uh, the Western church generally today, there is this sense that Jesus and the church and uh, gospel living is one thing among many in our lives. Maybe even the biggest thing in our lives. But discipleship, following Jesus, isn't for many people in America especially. We see it's not, even professing Christians in America, it's not the, the grid through which we view the world. It's not the lens through which we see everything. And yet, if we were to take a note from the Apostles' playbook here and see that Jesus is in fact the Christ, He is the leader and Savior of people, He is the Messiah that God has given, our lives should be marked by an utter devotion to the Lord Jesus. And so... What does that look like? Well, it looks like a commitment to speak of Christ publicly and privately. To do so individually to some degree, but to work fervently as a church to do so corporately. Are we doing that every day? Or do we see Sunday as the day for gospel talk and the other days of the week as days to use however we want? Or God forbid, do we not even really see Sunday as anything special? the disciples were committed thoroughly even in the face of persecution. And the truth is, perhaps for many, that's part of the problem is the ease with which we have lived. And so, what if the dial of persecution gets turned up? How will we respond? Well, I want to come to that in a minute, closing, but I want to land the plane here with a few other words of application. First, should we not desire to ha- to hear a similar quote condemnation from the kingdom of man regarding our own lives and our own community? They fill Jerusalem with their teaching. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, We might be so committed to Christ and to one another, so devoted to His cause, that it could be, would be, should be said of us that we have here filled Effingham County with the name of Christ. You know, there's the whole picture that we talked about when we opened where people talk about, you know, Jesus told the disciples, the apostles, go from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, find your own Jerusalem. Find your own Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's not really how it works. That was for them, and it went out, and we're continuing that spread to the ends of the earth, even though, in a sense, it reached the ends of the earth for them there when it got to Rome. But nevertheless, what would it look like for us to fill this place, Effingham County or Chatham County or Bryan County, Bullock County, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would it take for us, surely in league with other like-minded churches, to fill these jurisdictions with the teaching of Christ? Is that your hope? And not just a hope, but is it your expectation that that would happen, that God through us would do that? Uh, Horatius Bonar, in his little treatise, A Word to Fellow Pastors, writes about the danger of an unfruitful ministry. He's writing to pastors there, but I want to just sort of kind of extend it a bit to to all of us as God's people. He writes this, he says, The ministerial life of multitudes who are called to be overseers of the flock of Christ might be summed up as delivering sermons on the Lord's Day, visiting those who occasionally request it, and attending religious meetings. An incumbency of 30, 40, or 50 years yields no more than this. He goes on. These pastors, he says they can tell you if sermons preached, but of sermons blessed, they can say nothing. Discourses admired, but not necessarily made effectual by the Holy Spirit. Baptisms performed, but no souls actually awakened, converted, and ripening in grace. Sacraments dispensed, but no clear times of refreshing. Cases of discipline administered, but results of godly sorrow and repentance not. He says that the self-soothing response of many is to simply say, well, we must use the means and be the means and leave the results to God. Now, while this sounds good and on its face it is a true statement, Bonar observes, however, that for many, this is simply covering up a falsehood with the truth. And so he condemns the minister, and might we say Christians in general, who care nothing for snatching souls out of the fire. Who care nothing for the ministry of the Word in their midst. And they cover it up by appealing to the sovereignty of God. Bonar says, yes, we must submit ourselves to God... And yes, it's true that while we, one, must water, one must plant, one must water, God must give the increase. He says that to submit yourself to God, you must actually want the thing submitted in the first place. Right? So he says if you don't want to see discipleship happening in your midst, if you don't want to see souls converted, souls maturing in grace if that's what you don't want to see, then it's not fair to say you're submitting that desire to the Lord. But if we do want to see it, we can still submit our desire to see that happen, and yet, the truth is that if it doesn't, if we don't mature in grace, if we don't see people saved, converted, brought under conviction of their sins, and freed from the bondage of those sins to live in communion with God, it breaks our hearts. And so, on behalf of the elders of Redeemer Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, have you, or will you, if you haven't, join us in cultivating an insatiable desire to see God save souls in our midst and to see those souls saved continue to mature in grace day in and day out as the Word of God is ministered in our midst. Yes, it's true that only God can save. But may it be that if He chooses not to do so, if He chooses not to save through this ministry or, through, or to mature us in grace, may our hearts be broken to a thousand pieces. And might we weep over the souls of those who walk among us, die, estranged from God, bound for hell. Let's fill this place not just this building, but our homes and our community with the name of Jesus so that, as I've heard another church say of their city, that Jesus would become impossible to ignore as His Spirit empowers us to make disciples. Well, second application is fitting following the first. You know, it's interesting, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the religious leaders here call, you know or their uh, forgetfulness, that they had called for Jesus' blood to be on them and their children. And i want to think about that for a minute, that idea. Because, of course, their desire was, hey, if we're doing something wrong here, God can curse us. That's fine. And so that's not good. But in another sense, may Christ's blood be on us and on our children. Isn't that exactly what we pray for every single day? The blood of Jesus to cover me, to be on me, to be on my children? Because the truth is, I am guilty of the blood of Jesus. I am guilty of His death. And so are you. And it is only by acknowledging that I am already stained with it that God would be pleased to use it to cleanse me rather than condemn me by it. The blood of Jesus will either cleanse you or condemn you. And so, my prayer for each of us, for each of you, for each of your children, is that you would be thoroughly washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not living in submission to him regarding your thoughts, your desires, your choices, if you're not relying upon the power of his Spirit to live before him, In truth and faithfulness, if you've not trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, I want to invite you to do that now. Do it now. And if you don't know how, come and talk with me after the service. Or, young people, talk to your parents, come talk with me together. Fly to Jesus Christ. Well, lastly then, well, almost lastly, third application. It brings us back to those who are following Jesus. You know, we want to see this place filled with the teaching of Christ. But as we see here in Acts chapter 5, there is an adversary that hates everyone who would do such a thing. Filling Rinken with the name of Jesus will likely not be rainbows and butterflies all the way through. And so let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. If you are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ, would it be a joy to you? Right? The point is simple here. Living in obedience to Christ will bring you, at some level in a fallen world, into conflict with the kingdom of man. And so, our prayer should be that we would ever be increasingly committed to our King, to the King, so that if and when the time comes for us to suffer dishonor for His name, we will be ready. And I pray that whatever persecution comes, we would, like the apostles, rejoice that God would consider us worthy to join Christ not only in faith, not only in triumph, but in trial. Everybody wants the crown, nobody wants the cross. And yet, that is exactly the way of the kingdom of God. And so now, lastly, the passage ends by making clear that the apostles have been faithful to their charge thus far. They have as it were, fill Jerusalem with the name of Christ, and there are consequences. Now next week, Lord willing, as I mentioned when we started, we're going to look at one final problem that begins to distress the early church before complete and total persecution breaks out against the church. We're going to see the the growing needs of, of the church, and and. Yet as we will see in the coming weeks, God uses problems from within and without to strengthen the church, to advance his cause in the world. And so I am, I am pleading with God and convinced of a, an affirmative answer to this prayer that God would have much to say to us in the weeks to come in the months to come, as we look in these chapters ahead of us in Acts. And so, as a final application here, really a preemptive application of, of next week, in a sense, I want to invite you all to pray with me, especially if you're a member of this church. But I, I want to ask you to pray with me, to join me um, In a special, with a special and fervent zeal this spring and summer, to pray to God that He would make the preaching of His word and really the teaching of His word in every aspect, especially effectual here for our growth in grace and for the health of our church. There are many very important things that we need to see in all of the Bible, but I I think especially for our season of life here as we head into Acts 6 and following. There's much to see. God has much to say to us, and so I want to ask you to pray uh, regularly um, for God's Word and its ministry here. Um, I have more to say about that in the weeks to come about how we can do that, but I wanted to go ahead and put that call out now. And so, there it is. The apostles have been arrested. They have been questioned. They have stayed faithful, remained bold, and they have been released to continue the ministry of the Word And next week we will pick up in chapter 6 with the problem that arises from within.